0: Welcome to the sermon podcast of Paley Presbyterian Church. The following sermon is by Pastor Jonathan Meisel. Today we continue our series examining the Apostles' Creed. And as we've discussed the first few weeks of our study together in our small groups, one of the questions that has come up that I've been particularly intrigued by is this simple question. What was your experience with the Apostles' Creed as you were growing up? For some of you who hear that question, you perhaps can't even remember a time when you didn't have the Apostles' Creed as a significant part of your experience in the church. From early in your life, you recited that as part of the church, and perhaps you learned about it in a confirmation class, or you shared together in some other part of your life. This series is an important reminder for those who have had that kind of lifelong experience with the Apostles' Creed of the helpfulness of these words to renew our excitement and our vitality with these words that that can sometimes, as with anything that's said over time, can sometimes be said out of habit. But this series hopefully will revive in you a new vitality, a new reminder of the significance of these words. Others have answered that question in a different way. Perhaps because they either didn't grow up in a church setting or they grew up in a church tradition that didn't highlight the Apostles' Creed. They didn't have that kind of experience with the Creed. And for those in this kind of uh, of a setting, uh, this Helpful series can be a reminder of the rich history and the value in joining believers who for centuries have affirmed these basic tenets of faith. My own personal experience falls into this latter category. The church experience that I grew up in, the tradition that I grew up in, didn't say the Apostles' Creed on a regular basis. And so it was probably when I was in college, believe it or not, when I first heard the the words of the Apostles' Creed. And... I've learned to really appreciate the Apostles' Creed, this this way that the Church down through the centuries has, in a rather simple way, brought together the basic tenets of our faith, those things that we believe that bring us together. And it's important to recognize that, regardless of your experience with the Creed growing up, it's a helpful reminder of these basic truths of our faith. Why is that so important? Well, we live in a world of many ideas, many points of data, many different kinds of perspectives. Like never before, we can connect, learn, and hear viewpoints on various topics from various people in all sorts of different places. We can use words, the meanings of which can vary depending on who is proclaiming them. And in that kind of a world, It's vitally important that we understand what it is that defines who we are individually as followers of Christ and who we are collectively as the church. The Apostles' Creed seeks to set out some of these basic markers of faith, items on which we believers have agreed bring us together people of good faith may disagree on some areas that come on the periphery, and there may be, even be at times debate about what should be core and what should be a little bit uh, more on the edges. But it's important to find and it's important to articulate these core values, these things that bring us together. The Apostles' Creed does that. And that's why this series is so significant. Over the last few weeks, Becca has set the stage and begun to unpack the significance of this creed. Grounded in the grace of God and God's desire to relate to us, the church has formed these words as a clear statement of belief. And one of the most fundamental aspects of the nature of God that we see articulated in this creed is the understanding of something that the theological term we use is the Trinity. God is one being, existing in three persons. One equals three. God is one and three at the same time. That doesn't make sense from our logical way of looking at the world. It doesn't make sense from our cognitive way of working through who God is. That's in a way precisely the point. God is beyond our ability to conjure. God is beyond our ability to get ourselves to God. God is instead three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God in three persons. And the creed lays this out rather clearly, lays it out in words, but also lays it out in the logical progression of the creed. We see a focus first on God the Father, then on Jesus Christ the Son, and then on the Holy Spirit. But interestingly enough, the creed doesn't give those Three, three areas equal attention. Last week, Becca shared the first line of the Creed focused on God the Father. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And that's the end of what the Creed says about the Father at that, at that, in that way. Today, our focus shifts to the next phrase. And in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. After today, we're going to spend another four weeks throughout the month of February focused on the person of Jesus as described in this creed. Jesus is clearly significant to the church's understanding of God, and it's to Jesus that we turn our attention. As always, we want to understand these words of the Apostles' Creed in their biblical context. And to help us unpack this section, we're going to turn our attention today to Paul's words to the believers at Colossae, to Colossians chapter 1, beginning with verse 13. As we will do throughout this series, we're going to be reading today from the message version of the Bible. Hear these words. God rescued us from dead-end alleys and dark dungeons. He set us up in the kingdom of the Son He loves so much. The Son who got us out of the pit we were in got rid of the sins we were doomed to keep repeating. We look at this sun and see the God who cannot be seen. We look at this sun and see God's original purpose in everything created. For everything, absolutely everything, above and below, visible and invisible, rank after rank after rank of angels, everything got started in him and finds its purpose in him. He was there before any of it came into existence and holds it all together right up to this moment. And when it comes to the church, he organizes and holds it together, like a head does a body. He was supreme in the beginning, and, leading the resurrection parade, he is supreme in the end. From beginning to end, he's there, towering far above everything, everyone. So spacious is he, so expansive, that everything of God finds its proper place in Him without crowding. Not only that, but all the broken and dislocated pieces of the universe, people and things, animals and atoms, get properly fixed and fit together in vibrant harmonies, all because of His death, His blood that poured down from the cross. And in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, We turn our attention today to Jesus Christ, and specifically, we're going to focus on one aspect of Jesus Christ, his divine nature, the fact that Jesus is God. How do we know that? What difference does it make? What's those questions to which we turn now? When we say we believe in Jesus Christ, God's own Son, We are at the outset connecting Jesus to the Father. Jesus is God's Son, and therefore Jesus is of the same substance as the Father. In other words, Jesus is God. Jesus is divine. One of the fundamental tenets of the Christian faith is that Jesus is fully God and fully human. Again, 100% two things. It's like three in one. It doesn't fit our rational thinking. And we're going to turn our attention next week to the human side of Jesus, the humanity of Jesus, the significance of the fact that he was fully 100% human. But today, today we want to set our eyes and our minds on this fact, that Jesus is fully God. He's 100% God. Now for many of us who've heard that said many, many times, that can seem like a no-brainer. We can quickly move past it with... Just simple recognition. Let me let that sink in a little bit. To say that a person who lived on this earth is fully God, 100% God, that's no small statement. God is by definition, by nature, beyond our human material understanding. God would cease to be God if we could limit God in all the ways that, that we can figure up and conjure The only way, the only way that we can understand anything about God is as God reveals that to us. And there's no truer, more beautiful way for God to reveal himself to us than to come to us, to live among us, to be one of us. The Creed affirms that Jesus is God's Son. This person in history was God, fully God. In the reality that Jesus is God, we get a glimpse into the very nature of our almighty God. The unknowable, the incomprehensible, the unavailable comes to our world and gives us, as Paul said in that passage to Colossians, an understanding of God. Jesus is divine. Jesus is God. Wow. We need to take the time to let that really sink in. To let that really permeate our lives, to really recognize and to remember Jesus is God. Okay, the Creed says so, but how do we know? How do we know that Jesus really is God? One of the ways we know is that the Bible tells us so. The Bible says that Jesus is divine, that Jesus is God. The beginning of John's Gospel puts it this way, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word there is another way of focusing on Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and without Him not one thing came into being. The affirmation of God the Father that we discussed in the first phrase of the Creed connects God to creation. Here, John is connecting Jesus to that same creation and to that same creator. The Bible clearly makes the claim, Jesus is God. But the biblical writers weren't alone in making the claim of Jesus' divinity. In their recording of his life, the Gospels also relay Jesus' own words, affirming that he is the Christ. One of those encounters occurs in Matthew chapter 16, where we read this, when Jesus arrived in the villages of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, What are people saying about who the Son of Man is? And they replied, some, he, some think he is John the Baptizer, some say Elijah, some Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. But Jesus pressed them, And how about you? Who do you say I am? And Simon Peter said, You're the Christ, the Messiah. The son of the living God. And Jesus came back. God bless you, Simon, son of Jonah. You didn't get that answer out of books or from teachers. My Father in heaven, God himself, lets you in on this secret of who I really am. And now I'm going to tell you who you are, really are. You are Peter, a rock. This is the rock on which I will put together my church. A church so expansive with energy that not even the gates of hell... Will be able to keep it out. Peter recognized Jesus' true nature. And Jesus went right along with it. Jesus clearly claimed to be God. Now, there's a, a classic reckoning with this. Someone who claims to be God, that just because they claim to be God doesn't necessarily make them God. Saying the word that you're God, you know doesn't make it so. But many people will submit, even if they wouldn't necessarily agree that Jesus is God, they'll submit that he's a good teacher, a good person to be followed. But here's the problem with that kind of, of logic, with saying that Jesus is a good teacher, but he's not necessarily God. We clearly see that Jesus claims to be God. And a person who claims to be God has to be one of three things. Either the person who claims to be God, who thinks that he is God, thinks he's God, but really isn't. This person, in their minds, they're, they're telling the truth. They think and they believe that they're God, but in reality, they're not God. If that was the case, that kind of person is, is under a delusion, and they're not alone in that delusion. There have been people down through the ages, even up to our present time, who think and claim to be God. The reality is, though, that we recognize in such people a mental illness. A person who claims to be God, who thinks they're God, they, would be deemed someone who needs psychological and medical attention and medical help. If Jesus thinks he's God and is not, he's not worthy of being followed. He's a delusional person who needs psychological help. But that's not Jesus. The second response to a person who claims to be God is that they claim to be God and they know for a fact that that's not true. If that's the case, then there's no way that that person could be considered good because instead they're perpetuating one of the biggest hoaxes, one of the biggest lies ever known to humankind. A lying Jesus is not worthy of being followed. Here's the third and final alternative, final option. Jesus said he was God precisely because he is God. Jesus claimed to be God, and it wasn't a claim coming out of some sort of psychological delusion. Jesus claimed to be God, and it wasn't something coming out of a hoax or a lie. Jesus said he was God because he really was God. And I can say that with confidence, not just because of what he said, but also because of what Jesus did, how he demonstrated that he is God. He demonstrated this remarkable reality in a number of different ways. And perhaps the most often seen examples of Jesus' divinity came in the form of the miracles that he performed. Whether it was walking on water or multiplying a few loaves of fish uh, uh, and fish to feed thousands or calming a storm. Jesus demonstrated to his disciples and demonstrated to others who were there looking at him that he was no ordinary person. He was indeed divine. The greatest example of Jesus's divine nature, the greatest demonstration came on that first Easter Sunday morning. And we're going to get into this more fully down a little bit further in the creed. But for today, we are reminded that the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus Coming back to life after he was clearly dead is not something possible through mere human activity. Jesus is God, and we know this because Jesus rose from the dead. So the evidence for the divinity of Jesus is pretty clear. The Bible claims Jesus is God. Jesus claimed that he was God. And Jesus' actions demonstrated that he was. Is God. Do you believe it? Do you recognize that Jesus is God? Do you accept that reality? It's the invitation for each one of us today. Why does that matter? Why is it so significant that Jesus is God's Son, that Jesus is divine? Well, Paul's words that we read to the Colossian church a little bit earlier make the point clearest. And it says, God rescued us from dead end alleys and dark dungeons. He set us up in the kingdom of the Son He loves so much. The Son who got us out of the pit we were in got rid of the sins we were doomed to keep repeating. Sin, our disobedience and rebellion against God, puts us in dead end alleys and dark dungeons. Sin separates us from God. And in our own strength and our own ability, there's no way for us to get ourselves out of this mess. Jesus, God's Son, got us out of that pit of sin, got us out of the consequences of disobeying God and going our own way. And on top of that, Paul says he got rid of those sins so that they wouldn't continue to ensnare and to capture us. Jesus Christ made forgiveness and new life possible. But is the divine Savior necessary for that? Could Jesus be merely human, not God, and still help those things to occur? The simple answer, friends, is a divine Savior is necessary. Only God has the power to forgive sins. Only God has the power to make right the wrongs that we've committed. Only God can restore us and the created order to its original place in relationship with God, unmarred by sin. A mere human doesn't have that power. A mere human is doomed to the same sin and calamity as each one of us. No, friends, only a divine Savior can take away our sin. Only a divine Savior can set us on the path to true relationship with God. Thankfully for us, Jesus is that divine Savior. Jesus is God. Recognizing Jesus as fully divine creator who makes possible our salvation, then puts us to that Final part of this phrase that we're focusing on today. Our Lord. We're invited to make him not only our Savior, but also our Lord. In other words, we're invited to allow Jesus to be in charge of our lives. As Becca mentioned earlier in this series, it's believed that the very first creed in the church was the simple phrase, Jesus is Lord. And to recognize the full impact of this phrase, we must remember that in the days of the early church, there was only one who was to be proclaimed as Lord, and that was Caesar. Caesar was the one with absolute authority. Caesar was the one in charge of all things, and therefore Caesar was due the respect and honor that comes with position and title of Lord. There would be no other in Caesar's world who could be deemed Lord, at least from Caesar's perspective. But the early church looked at that situation and they said, no, not Caesar is Lord, Jesus is Lord. Jesus who demonstrated his power through his life and most significantly in resurrecting from the dead. Jesus is the supreme authority of this world and the supreme authority of our lives. Jesus is the one with the power. Jesus is the one worthy of respect and having the highest place in all of our lives. And much like that early church, there are things around us that would vie for our attention and would vie for that place of Lord in our lives. And we must wrestle with this question. Do we really believe that Jesus is Lord? Or do we allow these other things that vie for lordship to take a higher place than Jesus? What do I mean? What are some of those things that that vie for lordship in our lives? Well, perhaps the most pernicious, the one that, that comes to us most often and most Obviously, is I want to be Lord of my life. You want to be Lord of your life. We all want to have final say. We all want to be in control. We all want to be in charge. We all want to be the ones, that the, the, the emperors of our domain, the ones who are in charge of our lives. We don't want to depend on others, and we certainly don't, at our core sometimes, don't want to depend on God. But in the process, We're lowering Jesus from being Lord and making ourselves Lord of our lives. Have you done that? Have I? Sometimes it's not ourselves that we see vying to be Lord of our lives. Sometimes it's the world around us. It's the way that the world around us is organized. It's the government that's around us that we put our ultimate trust and our hope. We want to have government be the one that is in charge of our lives and of our existence. Now, don't get me wrong, this can happen on, on both sides of the aisle, and it can happen for people with various different kinds of political perspectives. And we are called to be good citizens who engage with our government and seek to influence it positively. But when we put our hope and our allegiance in government, whether, when we put our hope and our allegiance in the things that are around us, we're forgetting that Jesus, Jesus is Lord. Another big temptation in our culture is to look to science, to look to human ingenuity as Lord. We allow our scientific models, our intellectual and logical pursuits, to control and to guide our lives. We believe that human reasoning or education or similar kinds of pursuits can get us out of any mess, and so we put our allegiance and our ultimate faith and our trust in these things. Once again, please, be, please hear me. God created us with brains, and he encourages us and expects that we're going to pursue knowledge. The question isn't, should we pursue knowledge? Should we, should we not pursue the things that are around us? The question is, in what do we place our total and our ultimate trust and allegiance? Jesus invites us to make Jesus Lord. Are we doing that? This phrase of the creed, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. There's a lot packed into those few simple words. Jesus is God. As God in human form, Jesus can and did pay the penalty for our sins. And then he rose again, validating his unique divine place. Have you received his gift of forgiveness that only a divine Savior can give? Have you received this relationship with a God who loves you? Having received that gift, if you allow God to take first place in your life, to be Lord, to be the one in control, that's the invitation today. As we hear these words I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. May we recognize in that hope that it is ours, and our Savior and our Lord, Jesus Christ.